step inside my living room Share a little talk By roads walked and lessons learned Keeping the flame of faith burning I wanna know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the height In the height Put it all in the height Avram Rosenzweig began public speaking when he was five years old. Over the last five decades, Avram has mastered the art of public speaking. Today, Avram is a professional speechwriter and speech coach. He offers a wide selection of services that can assist you in preparing for public speaking events, speeches for family or professional occasions, a keynote, a memorial, or a simple toast. Avram can also coach you through articulation and presentation challenges. For all your speech writing needs, send Avram an email at info at hatradio.ca that's info at hatradio.ca hi and welcome back to hat radio my name is avram rosenzweig and this is episode 25 how exciting my guest today is an old friend of mine a very dear friend and i like to call him a serial manager or ceo would you his name's greg rogers would you say that's accurate uh, cereal something. Evan. Cereal yeah, something. Yeah. You like cereal? Uh, no, I'm not Shreddies. a cereal eater at all. No? Nope. None. But but uh, we we go way back, and ever since I've known you, you have been a CEO or executive director or now a manager of some organization, right? Mm-hmm. Right? You're one of those guys who run or runs organizations. Um, right from a young age, I was always a manager. Um, I, I, my mother used to always say I organized the baseball games in the neighborhood. So, you know, maybe it's, maybe I was just born this way. Was she nice? Your mom? Oh yeah. I love my mom. Yeah. Although I just found out, uh, a couple of years ago, I do, I hate to digress. <laughs> uh, I always knew I was adopted, but I, uh, a year and a half ago, I found my real mother, my natural mother and a natural, bro- a natural half brother and a natural half sister. How did that go? It was very strange, and because I'm 62, I wasn't looking for a second family, you know. So, you know, if it had happened when I was 40, it might, I might have felt different. So I just decided I'll take it organically, and we actually, uh, my sister and I have become quite close, and really? my brother and I are becoming closer, and it's it's fun. It's interesting, uh, but, you know, I don't... Send them Christmas presents or anything. Uh, it's you know we've got together. We get together. In fact, they were just here a couple of weeks ago in Gregland well, in my backyard. You're cheap, if I remember. Are you cheap? Am I cheap? Are you a cheap person? No, I'm just the opposite. I throw you're... money around like a sailor in port. Do you have savings at all? Not much. <laughs> you don't. Neither do I. <laughs> I. I have a house. That's that's my bank account. I actually remember your house. Yep. But you and I go way back, and uh, I, I, the genesis really of our friendship. And our collegial relationship is that when I launched Via Hafta in 1996, 97, uh, soon afterwards, we hooked up with you. You were the executive director of NAMI Res, which is the native men's residence. Yep. And you guys essentially taught us the streets. 
Well, as I remember, it was Randy Sikulski that sort of put us together. And you, uh, Via Hofta, had, what was a Tiku alum. Oh, very good. Look at you, and Mr. Jew by osmosis. You, you wanted to help people. And we had the vans going out to feed people on the streets. Yes. And we were hurting for money. And you were able to come up with some money to help us pay for the operation of the program. In return, you wanted to be able to put people on the van to educate them. And look, it was tremendous. And uh, a story I'll never forget, Avram, is you decided that you would uh, go to one of the rabbis and organize that people... Uh, and the rabbi wanted people to have their bar mitzvah or their bat mitzvah and rent the van, go out in the van, and learn about helping those less fortunate. Correct. That's Rabbi Tannenbaum you're talking about. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And I remember saying to the rabbi, you know, I don't think it's appropriate for a 13-year-old to go out down Tranny Alley and feed homeless people on the streets. Yeah. And the rabbi looked at me and said, I'll decide what's appropriate. You just have the van. <laughs> Those rabbis. <laughs> and I thought, fair enough, okay, fine. Yeah. yeah, well, I actually told that story many, many times, and the reason why it resonates with me nowadays is because my son had his bar mitzvah five weeks ago. Congratulations yes, on that. Yes, thank you yeah. so much. Thank you so much. And you know that there comes a time in a child's life where they truly do become a bar mitzvah. In other words, they become a person whose consciousness is raised. Like kids who are six and seven, they're dopey as hell, right? You've raised two kids. Yeah, I have. They're they're dopey as hell. Well, they're brain damaged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're just they're just not. They're in a magical place, sure. which, which is beautiful. Lucky them. Lucky them. Uh, I look forward to my second childhood. It's coming soon. It, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, but once they hit that age of rite of passage, which is twelve or thirteen, depending on the girl, the boy, you can see that they're far more aware far more conscious. And what the rabbi was saying was, he says, Avram, watch, you will see this one day, that kids who are 11 years old versus 12 and or 13 um, are different. And he, I, I believe he was right. Uh, I've actually, I don't even remember how I heard this. Maybe it was through Randy. I, I forget who, that I'd heard that the program had gone very well it and did. that you were still doing it. And, yeah. Uh, and that it's worked very well. So kudos to you and the rabbi. And um, Greg was wrong once again. Well, I, I have to tell you something. I mean, you, you were the also the executive director, the CEO of John Howard Society here in Toronto. Um, currently, you're working for Margaret's. And Margaret's Housing and Community Support Services. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I owe you a really super big hug and, and a thank you. I really do. Because when I started Via Hafta, uh, suffice it to say, I had no freaking idea what was going on. I, you know, one isn't born into being a CEO of an organization. Well, I remember early on, you of the huge heart yeah. and taking a homeless guy home with you because the guy was homeless and needed <laughs> yeah. a place to stay. And the guy robbed you blind. Do you remember? <laughs> yeah. And it was like, well, Avram just learned a lesson. <laughs> it's true. So he calls me. He was sleeping on the couch in my office. Actually, we'd given him a job. You don't, you don't do that shit, do you? You don't give people like homeless people jobs and a place to sleep. Well, I, I, I work with people who do give them jobs and certainly my job is to give them a place to sleep but you don't do but you won't not bring them my home. house no. and they don't come to my house no. to work and they don't come to my house to sleep no you know? no no knowing you you've never once brought a homeless person home with no. that correct no so so he calls me up he says avram you know you gentiles always call me avram he goes i have something to tell you <laughs> i go what is it he goes 
I, we, we, I broke into your strong box. Oh, okay. And what'd you use the money for? Crack. Yeah, crack. At least he was honest. No, yeah, and yes, and maybe even had a good time. Who knows? Okay, so I, I met with him. I said, if you return the money and here's how you're going to return it, I will let it go. I gave him a place to sleep again. Regard, needless to say, he calls me again a few days later. Avram, I'm really sorry. I broke into your strong box again, and I'm leaving town. I said, it's probably a good idea. <laughs> and the second time would be all your fault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I was the idiot, right? Yeah, we, you know, but it's it's funny. Um, right now, uh, we've just got some funding and something I'm organizing. We hire a lot of peer staff, yeah. people who with lived experience, who've been on the streets, who've been homeless, who've had an addiction and so forth. And uh, we find they are great workers with people because, first of all, they have some street cred. They also understand where somebody's coming from. But what they lack are the social work skills like boundaries and you ran into a boundary issue by bringing and sort of i'm not a social worker um you obviously didn't take social work training so there's sort of learning boundaries the hard way i i think so and it's a huge debate within our industry as to whether you should be hiring an individual who's coming out of social work school or you be very kind and compassionate and good, and you hire people who are coming off the street. That's a big debate, right? Well, uh, what we found, especially, uh, we, uh, I like to think Margaret's is running as good an outreach as this operates in Toronto right yeah. now. Certainly, we have three pro- outreach programs going now. We're doing incredible work. I'm very proud of it. And what we've tried to accomplish and, and, and has worked is we've taken one person who comes with formal education, comes with their BSW, their MSW, comes with a background in social work, and we team them with somebody who's got lived experience, somebody from the streets. So hence, they cover a lot of bases between the two of them, and it's working well. That's actually a very good idea. So it's a a symbiosis, sort of a middle road. Yep. And, uh, you know, touch wood, it's working very well. We've been doing it for about a year, and the program has continued to grow. And part of it is financed actually privately uh, by um, uh, the Young Dundas BIA. And they're pleased as heck with the results. And, you know, they're paying for it with their money. Right, right. I think it's a terrific idea. I just want to go back to what I was saying before. So when we started off, um, I, I was a little bit lost and a little bit lonely having this nonprofit charitable organization. And we weren't. We knew what our mission statement was, which was to encourage all Jews to play a role in Tikkun Olam, which is repairing the world, and by extension, everybody. But we weren't quite sure where we were going to go with this. So I met Marilyn Capriol, yep, who was the president of Namures at the time at a conference. Have you seen her? I mean, in the last ten years. Yeah, yeah. She dropped by my office a few years ago. And what's she doing? She was lovely. She really was. I think she was living in the bush. She was living up yeah, north. I'm not surprised. By enjoying that. her life, very positive, healthy. Healthy and yeah. uh, and and she had great memories of what we all accomplished together. No, she should. She was certainly a catalyst. Well, she was right. Yeah. So she she introduced me to you, and we hit it off immediately. Um, and you had an assemblance of understanding of what your job was, right, and how to do it. An assemblance, yeah, okay. <laughs> right? How to do it, and you taught me a lot. Well, thank you. I, um, you did. Thank you. I, I don't remember ever having to teach you anything. No, you taught me a lot. You taught me a lot. You showed me the ropes. You certainly showed via Huff to the ropes having to do with the street. Uh, well, I, I mean, that was, once again, that wasn't me. 
we hired a number of people from the streets yes. at NAMI Res yeah. that had lived there. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think the thing I'm proudest of at NAMI Res is the number of people who got a chance at a career. Yeah. Um, and it was such a natural fit to, to have them out working because of their lived experience. And boy, oh boy, you know, they could teach anybody. And they certainly, but, but the dynamic between the two groups was incredibly positive. It was, wasn't it? Yep. It was excellent. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I wanted to uh, tell a little bit of the story, a little bit of background on some of the things that we shared, w one of which was we shared donors, <laughs> right? We had people who would come up and they go, oh, you wouldn't believe it. I just donated X amount to Nami Res and uh, they are so happy or we just brought in 35 bags of our clothing and I'm sitting there going, yeah, right on, dude. But obviously inside I'm pissed off. I wanted your money, right? right. <laughs> well, well, I, I think... Probably in the end, that's what what might have happened. Well, it all you balanced know, out, well, did the, it? Yeah. The thing, you know, also, we both grew. Yeah. We both grew a lot, and when you grow, comes more people depending on donations, more people de de depending on funding, um, and, and you know, maybe that got in the way a little bit. But um, at the same time. You know, your email has viahofta.org at the end of it. And I uh, invited Via Hofta in to speak to my staff here at Margaret's here, I don't know, two or three months ago. Yeah, that was very good of and, you. And, you know, Via Hofta continues to do amazing work. So, wow, good on you. And good on you, my friend. You're always very embracing of us. We had a friend, a mutual friend, um, whom we embraced, and his name was Milt Harris. Yeah, oh, definitely. You remember Milt? Yeah, well, I, I remember Milt. I also went to, what are you, uh, a Seder? Yeah, Seder, Passover Seder. Yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah. but I knew his son, and I and his son's become a judge, David. Oh, is that right? I yeah, didn't know and that. And David, uh, David was actually provided me the transition. He's that uh, told me about the job at John Howard. Yeah, and uh, David is just an amazing man. Uh, I've always been in awe of David Harris, and he certainly was good, and uh, uh, he was a great board member at both Nami Res and John Howard. And uh, now he's a judge, and I think that makes Canada a better place. That's very cool. Milt came up to me once. I don't know if you know this or not, but Milt said, listen, uh, Namirez is, uh, uh, has a full board, and I really want my son David to be on it. So could you speak to Greg? I said, sure. Or Marilyn, whoever it was. And I yeah. spoke to you or Marilyn, and you guys put him on the board. Well, he was a great board member. Yeah, yeah, and, he uh, was. And he also was a good donor, you know, and he probably wouldn't want me saying that, so... Edit that out. But here's the story, and you'll remember this. Right. Uh, when you are running a nonprofit, money uh, talks, and it says everything. You don't have cash, you don't do programs. Am I correct? Yeah, exactly. You can't help people if you don't have staff. That's right. And you can't and programs, and you can't have staff and programs if you don't have money. Yeah. And you become very dependent in Canada on government funding, and government funding. Uh, carries with it restrictions. It carries with it responsibilities. Um, and you're always looking for the kind of uh, donation money that comes where you just put it in the pot and you can use it on specific programs or where you're short or where you think it needs to go. And, you know, an ED of a nonprofit spends a lot of their time 
trying to make sure that there's enough money to pay staff and enough money to go around. I remember you running around, oh, man. It, Hi, Zach. Greg, how's it going, buddy? Yeah. He goes, Avram, I can't really talk right now. I got to make, I gotta make a, a salary for everybody here, no, right? There, there, there were times in my life it's been very difficult. It's tough, isn't it? It is. Um, but you actually uh, get to a point, I believe, where you actually cross into... An agency like Fred Victor, for example, has been able to, the city comes to them with projects now. And I believe that's what happened at NAMI Res. And certainly at John Howard, we grew to an extent that we became uh, the go-to agency for criminal justice in Toronto. But it's a lot of work and it's a lot of work to grow an organization. And there are a million speed bumps coming at you. And on a Tuesday afternoon, something you didn't see coming can blindside you. Yeah. Um, You know, uh, we bought a building at John Howard. Just as we were closing on the building, we found asbestos. And that's a $200,000 discovery. Oh, oh, Jesus. Now, the board at that point and, and management has to make a decision. Do we still go ahead with the purchase? And, you know, we decided, yes, look, it was still that good a deal, but we'd have to eat it. But we didn't have $200,000 sitting anywhere. Like, that has to come from somewhere. And you can't have staff sit there with asbestos. So, you know, you have to remove it. It is the law. Yes. Um, And that's just one of the joys of management. And, And I think one of the hardest parts about being an executive director of a nonprofit is you have to know a whole bunch of things that nobody knows, real estate, marketing, fundraising, uh, staff management, uh, uh, motivation, um, homelessness programming, social services. Nobody has that complete skill set, but yet you have to, or at least you have to know where to find it. So do you believe in yourself on that level? (laughs) No, you don't, eh? (laughs) Don't you kind of feel sometimes as though you're walking around bullshitting everybody? Uh, there are times I did bullshit people. Yeah, um, yeah, just to get through. Well, you have to. And and there's also times where you've got to be honest and say, look, I just don't know. Yeah. And, you know, you're going to fail if you're too proud to ask for help. So you've got to be able to ask for help and say, look, I just don't know that. Or how do I find that out? Or what do you do? And uh, hopefully you have that help on your board. Certainly, hopefully, you have that help. In my case, I went home to a lovely woman who would tolerate uh, the highs and the lows and would tell me when I was full of shit and would uh, tell me I'm better than I think I am at times, too, when I was down. And you would listen? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Well, yeah. Uh, but I, I just want to go back to Milt for a second, okay. and then I want to talk about your personality. Sure. <laughs> How about my personality? Milt was a wonderful human being. How exciting. Do you remember the organ he had? Yeah, he, yeah. He taught himself, I guess, in his 70s yes. to learn to play the organ. I think it was a harpsichord. Oh, is that what it was? I remember going to his apartment. I go, Mel, he goes, you want to hear some harpsichord? <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Who doesn't? Sure. Exactly. Sure. Who doesn't, right? And it, yeah, he started learning it at 70. So I, I really, we should play tri- pay tribute, tribute to Mel Terrace because he was a lovely human being. And my point before was when you are a CEO or an executive or a manager, really your responsibility is to make sure you meet payroll. Your responsibility is to make sure you pay for the water and for the electricity and all the other sundry things that come your way so you're out there plying your trade you're doing your very best to raise money you're doing this on a regular basis you know how much is in the bank 
and you know how much isn't in the bank and how much is coming. Cash flow is everything. Yep. So from time to time, I would ask people for the big donation. Yep. For, for a million bucks. Okay. Did you ever do that? Uh, did I ever ask? Uh, the, uh, the only time I got a million dollars was from the federal government. From the feds. From the feds. Um, and I never have any qualms about asking government for money. No. See, the difference between you and me, and I always said this to you, I have a hard time asking people for money. Do you? I have a very hard time. I yeah. have a very hard time asking individuals for money. While I always said you went up to people and shook them upside down until <laughs> the, the money stopped falling out of their pockets. You remember those days? Where I didn't, you know, your weakness was you wouldn't go after government. That's um, correct. That's right. And I think part of it was the restrictions that came with you know, government money comes with rules. Yeah. And you have to use it for what you said you were going to use it for. Yes. You have to report on it, You, which is fair enough. But it does, uh, you know, for example, I was just down to Scott Mission. Scott Mission do not take city money. They do incredible work. Yes. Um, but they make their own rules. And they can do it their way. And... I would say to anybody who cares about the homeless in Toronto, go in and visit the Scott Mission, especially at lunch hour, and see the wonderful job and how organized it is and how nice it is and the meal they get. They do a wonderful job. Kudos to them. They really do. I think they were started by a Jewish guy, by the way. I don't know about that. Scott Mission on Spadina, right? It's on Spadina just next to, uh, just up from the El Macombo. There, that, yeah. That's right. Yeah. El Macombo was started by a cousin of mine. Okay. That, yeah, I'm just throwing some shit out here. I, I, I taped, taped a rock band there years ago. <laughs> Did you? Yeah. I know. I want to get into that later. Yep. But, but uh, yeah, some Jewish guy, I think he converted to Christianity and he started the Scott Mission. Yeah. Uh, I know they have pictures up of uh, what looked like ministers, right. uh, old black and white pictures, and I yeah. presume they had something to do with the starting it, but uh, I don't know. I'm assuming too. But there, whoever started it should be very proud. So... Oh, Amen. I agree with you. So I go to Milt Harris, and he was a lovely guy, and we had a great relationship. We used to hang out together. I loved him so much. You know, he was a little fellow, but he was tough as nails. Wasn't he a boxer? Or he something? was a boxer yeah. back in London. He dealt with a lot of anti-Semitism. Right. Um, and he started up Harris Steel. Yep. So you got to figure someone who's running a steel company. Like it's not a, it's not a perfume shop, well, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. you, you got to be tough, yep. and he was tough. So at some point, I said to him, I said, Mel, you know, I'm just wondering, we need money to get Viahafta to a different place. Would you be at all amenable to contributing a large sum of money? He said, yeah, I'd be, I'd, I'd think about that. And, I, and he goes, how much are you thinking about, Avram? I said, I'm thinking about a million dollars. Oh, he looks at me, he goes, hmm, he goes, that's possible. Oh, wow. Like, that's what you want to hear, yeah. right? Right. You were on your best behavior. <laughs> I sure was. Exactly. Yeah. You become that person, you know. You just, you, I mean, I was so appreciative. A week later, he died. A week later, he died. That was thought of me giving you a million dollars and kill me? Too. No, no, no. I see what you're doing there, Greg. <laughs> I see exactly what you're doing, dude. No, and, and, and my heart broke. I went into his office and I was literally in tears with his staff because I was so fond of this man. He was such yeah. a great man. But that was the closest I ever got to a million-dollar gift. Uh, I can't tell you what the largest individual gift I got, but it was it was not it was not six figures. But you were really good with the city. You did a great oh, job. Oh, the city? You, know, no, but, you were great. But at the same time, you know, we did a good job 
I always said I delivered on what we said we were going to, you know? Yeah. And I'm fortunate that I've worked with staff that had, and managers where we've done some pretty innovative stuff. Yes, And you we've did. done some stuff that worked and some stuff that's really developed. Um, and we've helped a lot of people along the way, you know. And I say to, to my staff, and I said it at John Howard, and I say it today at Margaret's. And in fact, at Margaret's, I see it so up close. There are people alive today because of what we do, because of what Via Hofta does, because of the organizations yeah. I've been with, what we do. My outreach team at Margaret's has saved 16 people this year with naloxone on the streets. 16 overdoses, they were, they've applied naloxone. That's 16 people would be dead yeah. without the work of, of the tremendous uh, outreach team. And I'm just so proud. And it's, wow, you know, imagine the responsibility you have when you, what's your job duties? Oh, keeping people alive. Yes. You know, wow. Yes. So, Man, you've changed, you know. <laughs> no, you have I hope for the better. Do you for the better. Yeah, okay. You know why I say that? Well, I'm fooling you anyway. <laughs> You're doing a good job. Yeah. You know why I say that? When we were working together, and it was for a number of years, 97 to 205 or something like that, like I, I used to, you know me, I probe people. I yeah. want to know what motivates oh, them. Oh, you're nosy as hell. Yeah. I am nosy yeah. as hell. So yeah. I would ask you, so so like, Greg, do you do you have a passion for this? You know, do you have a love for these clients that we're working on behalf? You go, no, I don't really care. It's a job. That's what you used to say to me. Well, For years, you would say this to me, and I go, I don't understand that. But you're not like that anymore. Well, no. Um, I think I probably would still say that to you in <laughs> that you? situation. Yeah. Because we all have our ways of protecting ourselves, ever. Yeah. And I see death all too often. Uh, I had a, We had a client uh, murdered this past week. We've had three clients that I know died. I don't. I'm not a social worker. I don't interact with the clients. If I knew the client's name, it's because I he's usually done something bad and I have to suspend him or something. Yes. Um, there's a few that I know well enough. How's it going? Da, 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 da. But it's not my job to personally interact with them other than, hi, how's it going? Yes. Because I'm not trained in it. And the worst thing, not the worst thing, but a bad thing, that can happen is somebody who means well doing the wrong thing. And I don't want to do that. Uh, we have staff, uh, there's a lady I work with named Melissa. Melissa is the best social worker I've ever come across. She is tremendous. This woman is a gift from God. Mm -hmm. um, she is, uh, she's, I mean, she's a Newfoundlander, she's brash, she's tough. She swears like a trooper. I love that. Um, and she'd help anybody. But most importantly, she knows how to help people. Yes. And she knows how to get through to them. She knows how to get them what they need. And she doesn't judge. And they're way better dealing with Melissa than they are with Greg. What would she do? Do you watch her work? Oh, all the time. Well, what would she do? First of all, she finds out what you want. Yeah. You know, she doesn't tell you what you want because you can't help a person unless they want to be helped. Yes. And they know what they need. You know, they're adults. Um, you're not sitting as their guardian. You're sitting as their helper, their assistant. How, you know, how can I help you? You know, and when they're ready to look for housing, they'll let you know. Mm -hmm. When they're ready to come off the streets, they'll let you know. Mm -hmm. When they're ready or they're sick and tired of feeling, waking up and feeling like shit, they'll let you know. 
when they're sick and tired of going to jail, they'll let you know. Um, and sometimes people got to bottom out before they're ready. And also, so few people succeed the first time. Yes. You know, you've got to be prepared to help them on the 17th time. That's when they might make it, you know. And I mean, I'm not a social worker. I don't have any expertise in addictions other than they're very tough to break. Mm -hmm. And I see people beat their addictions. I see people all the time who change their lives. And those are tough people. They are tough, aren't they? Yeah. They are tough. And, you know, God bless them. They're, they're, they're the people who deserve the kudos. Oh, uh, you know, I people often say to me, they say, oh, these homeless people, why don't they just pull up their socks? You know, socks. Firstly, they don't have socks. Uh, well, <laughs> to, to they, pull or up. they have wet, uh, wet, wet, wet socks. socks causing them foot problems. Do you remember our socks program? Yeah, I love this. Well, you know, I got to tell you, to this day, socks are still something I scrounge for and beg for. And I do have a Jewish lady who's helping us, who's like the sock queen, who's bringing us socks by the hundreds, and we desperately do. Yeah, that. I'm so happy to hear that. By the and way, by the way, still dealing with Jody at Bargains Group, and she does amazing work. Yeah. I think it was you that might introduce me to Jody. Right, Jody. And also, there's an organization that kind of grew out of what we were doing, and they, uh, they're basically they collect socks or they raise money to buy socks. So there's socks out there. If you're always looking, let me know. Okay. Okay. Um, but, but people say, pull, let, let the homeless pull up their socks. And I go, look, idiot. These people bother me so much, right? Tell me one thing in life that you have never, ever been able to change. That thing that you wake up every single morning, you go, today's the day. Today is the day I'm going to be able to overcome this fear that I have. Well, why don't you pull up your socks, bud? Mm-hmm. I mean, most of the people who are living on the street is they did not start out as queens and kings. They did not start out having a easy lives. A significant amount of people on the streets were grew up with one hand tied behind the Correct. back. Correct. Uh, mummy drank when they were when when she was pregnant, and they would step over her on the way to school while she was inebriated, vomiting on the floor. Yeah. Or they come from a tough home. Yeah. You know, and the tough home has a million descriptions. They came from a broken home where uh, it just wasn't possible. They came from a home where mom was required to hold three jobs down, and, and hence they raised themselves for the most part. Um, they they had a liking for something that was bad for them. Yes. Whether it was drugs, alcohol, gambling, whatever. And sometimes you can do enough drugs that guess what? You don't get better. Um, crack is like that, where you burn out the synapses in your in your head, and you you know well, you're never going to be what you were going to be before that. Mm-hmm. A long term alcoholic faces that. Um, glue. Uh, people come from parts of Canada where they just didn't see opportunity, where they didn't see a chance. You know, I grew up in suburbia, New Brunswick, and Fredericton. Yes. But I always thought I had a chance. There are people that never thought they had that chance. Um, And that's who's on the streets. Um, There are people whose wives left them, and they snapped. There are people who got hit by a car and have chronic back pain and got addicted to Percocets, and that's why they're on the streets. You know, everybody's individual. There's... 9,000 people homeless tonight. There's 9,000 reasons. We once did a program down in St. Lawrence Market. 
there were about a thousand individuals who showed up living on or near the street. And we did a mobile. I used to have a show on CFRB. You'll remember that. Yep. Marty and I from the food I guys. Do. Did you ever come on the show? No, but uh, I had lunch with you and Marty at the Rainforest. So at the Rainforest? The Rainforest Cafe. Isn't yeah. that a great place, eh? Uh, you liked it. Yeah, the Rainforest. Yeah. So there was a fellow whom we interviewed. His name was Bob. Okay. And Bob, it's interesting because people who are homeless here in Toronto often look very good. You know? Well, no, no, I'm saying it's because- I work at Sherburn and Dundas. I beg the difference. I'm saying it's the availability of nice clothing. Okay. Like, I know people who donate beautiful, beautiful clothing. Okay? Okay. That's what I mean. I'm not, God forbid, undermining anything that they're going through. Anyway, so I look at Bob in the interview and I sit in, Bob, you know, I'll I'll be real honest with you, okay? If somebody would just see you walking by on the street, they would say, hey, that guy's pretty well put together. What is it that forced you to- be on the street, to be homeless, to leave your home. And he says, I'll tell you how from. He goes, there was a fire in my house and my wife was killed in that fire and my daughter was killed in that fire and my mother was killed in that fire. And you sit back and think for a sec, like you're stymied for that moment, right? You must have heard a million stories, right? Variations. Variations. And you think, sure, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I meet guys all the time. We work with both men and women. Uh, people all the time who I say, you shouldn't be homeless. You seem all right. Yes. And then there's a story like that. Yeah. Yeah. Of which you've heard many of them, right? At the end of your days in, in Judaism, we say you should live till 120 because that's how long Moses lived for. Do you, do you think you'll look back and say, Greg Rogers, job well done? Like I, you weren't making widgets. Um, you were tailoring suits. Nothing wrong with that. Beautiful thing. But you saved those 16 people on the street. Not directly, indirectly, but because you were able to keep that organization running. Will you say, Greg Rogers, job well done? I will say this. Um, I have heard a toast that may you have an, have an interesting life. Yes. I've had an interesting life. You really ever. have. I really have. Yeah, you have. And I'm very fortunate to have done what I've done. Um a boy that came from North Fredericton. I've done some neat stuff. Yeah. I've met some neat people, and I'm proud of every job I've had. Some worked out better than others, um, but I, you know, in the long run, I don't. I'm not embarrassed, um, and I'm not going to be sitting in a rocking chair with a whole bunch of I wishes. You know. I understand. I understand. So you fulfilled what you set out to do. I, no, uh, wrong. I didn't set out to do anything. So it was easy to fulfill. <laughs> I never had a goal. That's I the mean, Canadian way. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I Maybe I should have had a goal. Yeah. Um, I always meant to. I just never figured one out. You haven't gotten around to it no, yet. No, but you know, one of these days I'll figure out what I want to do when well, I grow up. Well, it's kind of interesting because you came from Fredericton and you got into TV, television, yeah. right? Yep. And uh, people felt as though you were very creative. Like you were developing some interesting ideas for a show. One show that you were going to do was from a truck stop. Yeah. The, uh, okay. Yes. I um, thought that was pretty you've cool. Done your research, but um, um, once again, I didn't take television training, but I ended up working for the Community Channel in Fredericton, uh-huh. and which was pirate television if there ever was <laughs> we did things oh i mean some of the stories i could tell you are, are hilarious 
uh, break your heart and everything in between. Can you give us one? Oh, look, we, uh, well, it's funny. I'm on a course right now to, for, I'm part of our health and safety committee at work. So yes. I have to go to the Ontario government health and safety course. And they're talking about, you know, how employers should be proactive. We had a van at Fredericton Cable that we had to push start. <laughs> on a, we had to park so it was going down a hill so we could jump start the sucker to get going. That's the only way we could get to our job to do it, to, to, uh, to take, to take videos. To like do the Flintstones. Oh, it was crazy. Craziness. Yeah. Um, oh, and so uh, uh, like it was just so poor, and we were doing things. We were making it up as we went along, and the great thing about making stuff up as you go along is you can make up some fun stuff. <laughs> yes, that's true, isn't it? That's true. <laughs> some of it was pure crap, and some of it was a bad idea, but some of it was really, really neat. Huh? Well, what was the idea for the truck stop show? Um, uh, it was in medicine. I was working in Medicine Hat, and. Uh, the problem with local television in a place like Medicine Hat is I could buy an episode, and this is 1981 to 1983, I could buy an episode of MASH, which was going to get a 40 share, um, for $40. Yes. I can't produce a local show for $40. But what we wanted to do was go to the Husky truck stop (laughs) and do a sort of a midnight show where we'd interview some of the truckers, we'd play some music videos, interview some local people from town, and just do a, you know, have a coffee here at the Husky Truck Stop, because Medicine Hat was very much a Husky Truck Stop sort of place. I love that. And it would have had the personality of the town. And you know what? Maybe you could do that now, where the cost of doing a remote broadcast would be so much cheaper and, and so forth. But then it would have cost, I don't know, ballpark $1,500 an episode. And an episode of MASH was 40 bucks, So that's why it never got done. Yeah, that's how those decisions but are made. But we did do an awful lot of neat shows, that notwithstanding. I also spent a summer chasing, um, doing rodeos all around southern Alberta and western Saskatchewan. How, how was that? Don't ever do that. How come? Uh, well, it's dusty, dry. Um, you know, I'm not a huge animal person, but there was some stuff going on with the animals I wasn't crazy about. It's a real tough world, too. Um, and a lot of macho, and I'm not particularly a macho guy, and I'm certainly not a Western macho guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the saddest things in the world was I uh, had to broadcast from the Calgary Stampede, and it was mandatory we dress like cowboys. <laughs> and you should never take a maritimer and say dress like a cowboy. Well, Lord Thunder did, and... <laughs> Lord Thunder Jesus, it did not work well. You know, so. Well, why didn't it work well? Greg in a purple shirt with the cowboy twirls. Not you. Uh, it just, I, I just, I did not feel comfortable for one second. But let, let me ask you, I love your sideburns. I love your sideburns. You don't see sideburns a lot. Uh, there you go. I don't no, like when you walked in my door, how long has it been since we've seen each other? I was thinking about that. You came since I was at John Howard, but fairly early on. It's, I would guess 2008. It's been a while. But I'll tell you, we can find out because the last time we saw each other, I had you for dinner and you wrote an article, I believe it was in the Canadian Jewish News, yeah. called My Dinner with an Eskimo. Yeah, remember that? Which mortified my wife. Did it? Yeah, well, she's an Eskimo. Although she, I'm not allowed to use the word and more importantly, you're not allowed to use oh, the and, word. And, and why, why are we not allowed to use that well, word? Well, Eskimo is a Cree word. It's uh, it would be like the N word. Oh, was she angry? She can call herself an Eskimo. You can't. Oh crap! Man. You know, I'm so sorry. But you know she loves you. I mean, she wasn't like stick a stick a needle into Avram type thing. But she's oh, he shouldn't have said that. Well, I want you to know something. She and I rub noses. 
Uh, I wasn't jealous. Wait, you weren't jealous? Are no. you a jealous man at all? I can be. You can be. Yeah, yeah. I can be too. So I said to her, I said, listen, Lenny, I, I've never, I, is this true? Is this a real traditional thing as a show of an affection? If I understand correctly, if I'm wrong, please tell me, I don't want to get in trouble with your wife. And I don't want to be the cultural I, ambassador for Inuit either, but I'll do my best. But I think it is. I think they did rub noses. Does this, well, have no, you and your no, wife rub noses? No, no, it's not rub noses at all. What they do is they sniff. I see. And it's primarily something you do with a baby because babies smell so wonderful. Okay. So it's a sniff, but it's a sign of affection. So I would go up and I would sniff you. And it looks like if I'm doing it to your face, I'm rubbing your nose. Oh, okay. But what I'm doing is breathing your personal smell because I think so much of you, your personal smell means something. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that right? beautiful? I that is like really that. beautiful. Yeah. So how come she said, okay, let's rub noses then? Well, she's a rub nose sort of girl. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. No, I mean, she's, she, uh, let's face it, you're not the first white guy ever to say, hey, do you, what's rubbing noses to her? You know? She's idiot. been down that alley. I'll tell you a quick funny story. She, um, uh, her aunt is actually an acclaimed filmmaker who doesn't speak any English. Yes. And uh, her aunt's show, before, uh, movie Before Tomorrow was showing at the Polish Film Festival in a place that I can't pronounce, but in, in Canadian English would be called Roklaw. Okay. In Polish, it's or something. <laughs> Good one, yeah. Um, Sounds like the Kung tribe. <laughs> yeah, and anyway, they were there for the Polish film festival and where they were showing Aunt Madeline's film. Oh, wow. And Aunt Madeline got on the Polish version of Johnny Carson at The Tonight Show, and the host says, so, do you rub noses? And Blandina's job is to translate for Madeline, because Madeline doesn't speak any English. Eh. And so Blandina says, he wants to rub your nose. Eh. So Madeline, God bless her, grabs the host, buries <laughs> her face, gives a big <laughs> cooney, it's called. Yeah. Cooney's the heck out of him, and the poor guy's sitting there all embarrassed, and Madeline's just proud of herself. Very so generous of spirit. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, th thank you for explaining that, and I feel like an absolute idiot. But, uh, but it was fun. I really liked rubbing noses with your wife. How did you meet her? Uh, she was, I was training director for Inuit Broadcasting yeah. in, in a place called Baker Lake. And then I got transferred to Iqaluit, which is the capital of Nunavut, but it was the Northwest Territories in those days. Wait, who transferred you? Uh, Inuit Broadcasting. Yeah. Um, and I was in charge of training the news and entertainment divisions. Blendina was the executive director or executive producer of the Children's Network. She developed Inuit Children's Television in the world and they actually won an award from the united nations and so forth and some of their training was actually done by jim ensign and the muppets oh you're kidding uh which is and the fraggle rock the fraggle rock trained them yes so um what they did is they developed inuit children's television a show called tagugani which means look and learn uh, i apologize if i'm not perfect with that what it means but what i always found amazing was they were asked for the puppets don't have seals or caribou, animals we eat, because we don't want the children to fall in love with the animals we eat. So the what they had was they had ground squirrels or seek seeks and ravens and so forth as the puppet animals. Huh. These are animals that they didn't eat, so it was okay to make them personality and, and friendly and so forth. I thought that was kind of neat. Yeah, that's so, But anyhow, I took one look at Blandina and fell instantly in love with her. Yeah. She was married to somebody else, which was a bit of an issue. Yes, uh, it would be. Yeah, and she uh, hated white people, which and I'm as white as they come. <laughs> um, Rogers, you don't get any. In fact, I did have my DNA done 
28% English, 22% Scandinavian. That's white. Um, you are very white. Yeah, though. And uh, so, you know, initially she hated me. Um, but I worked really hard at her. Like, what do you mean? Give me give me a sense. Okay. What, what happened to her husband? Uh, well, her husband beat the crap out of her. So, like, he oh, took care he? of that himself. Asshole. Um, he was. Um, yeah. He's dead now, so we won't speak bad. Well, rest him. in peace. Yeah, asshole. Yeah. But um, yeah. he, uh, uh, what I did, well, there's two two stories. One is, is a very noble one. I wrote her a love letter every day for a year in syllabics, in her language. Did you? I had a... Uh, English Eskimo Dictionary. That's what it was called. Yeah. And I would look up the words and I would write it. Well, and, I have one of those. Everyone does. Okay. Yeah. And, I, and I tried to <laughs> learn syllabics. I actually took and hooked to took course. I was horrible. But I wrote her this every day. And I and although she has said more than once, don't speak Anuk to took, Greg. It hurts my ears. Um, I think she liked that. The yeah. other was she couldn't find a babysitter for Sheena, who's our daughter, but uh, at five. And Sheena was... Um, didn't speak any English and she had to go blending and my wife had to go to Montreal for a training course and she couldn't find anybody to look after Sheena and I'm going pick me pick me pick me so finally she ran out of choices so I moved into the house well the first thing I did was I brought my color TV with me Blandy had just an old black and white and the second thing I did is I ordered cable TV and because all they had was CBC North so you were ingratiating yourself well I'll never forget Sheena, my daughter, the first Saturday morning she gets up and it's Saturday morning cartoons as compared to CBC. Well, this is so Blandina comes home and like Sheena's keep the white guy. The white guy stays, you know, (laughs) white guy's good. Yeah, maybe we should use that for world peace. (laughs) And I I certainly did that deliberately. So that's how conniving. I. So tell me about the white guy thing, because at some point in time, I found out that I'm a white guy. I, I know I did. I thought I was a Jew. I went through this with Amber Kellen because we used to, as a United Way agency, we had to check off all the boxes of all the different cultures. Yes. And I had to inform her there's no longer a box for Jewish. You are now just white. You're just white. Yeah. Yeah. So, same thing happened to the Italians. Yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah. Like somebody got very angry with me and he said, you're just like every other white guy. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm Jewish. He goes, you're a white guy. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And then it was at that point where I realized, OK, yeah. so I'm a white guy. Yeah. So how, how does welcome to the club? Yeah. So yeah. what do, were you accepted? Like who are your in-laws? So um, what, did they like you? Yes. But it was also a different time than it is now. Um, you have to remember the Eastern Arctic. People were still living on the land until the 60s. Mm-hmm. So there was, if not a. Like there was a respect for the people who brought the bullets, the skidoos, the, you know, all these gadgets that made life easier. Yes. Sugar is a nice thing to have if you haven't had sugar. I remember saying to Blandina's grandmother one time, through Blandina, because the, the woman didn't speak English, you know, do you mind that we moved you into houses? And the woman looked at me like I was nuts. Yeah. And she said, uh, central heating is a good thing. It is. You know, and if you live in the Arctic, a furnace is a heck of an idea. Doesn't hurt. So I was sort of the last generation of people to go north that benefited from this largesse, from this um, you were here to help us type attitude. Um, that attitude is gone now. Is it? Uh, um, yes, I think that, you know, I think there are still many 
intercultural relationships where people are falling in love and it's very much an individual thing. But I think there's very much a belief that, you know, it's our land and we want to do it our way. And fair enough. And the the Fredericktonians, is that what they're called? I guess so, yeah. What, what were they like, your in-law, your parents, with your wife? I'll tell you what. It was rocky at first, was it like especially when I said I'm bringing home my Inuit uh, lover and we're going to stay together in one room. Well, why did you say you're bringing home your Inuit lover? Well, because... Say so you're bringing home your girlfriend. Well, you... I, that's probably what I said. Okay, you know, okay. I, I, I use Inuit lover as an adult, but I probably said Okay, okay. And her two children. Well... Uh, my mother was imperial order daughter of the empire as you know <laughs> and my dad was a prince Edward island man who i remember one time when i talked about a black girl in university he said you know people should stick to their own kind is that your dad was so like that, that was sort of where they came from okay i got it but i gotta tell you my mother and my wife ended up way closer friends than i she ended up closer with my mother than i was really and my dad loved those two kids like nobody you've ever seen oh that's nice um so it was very good. And and the Imperial Order, Daughter of the Empires of Nashwaxis, New Brunswick, <laughs> God bless her, raised a whole pile of money for the Innu because my mother didn't know the difference in the Innu and the Inuit. What is the difference? Uh, well, the Innu are the Nescapi and, and Montigny First Nations of Labrador. They're, they're a different race of people entirely than okay. Inuit. Okay. They just happen to have a similar sounding name. So God bless my mother. She she and her group of old ladies raised this money, and I think it's socks or sweaters or whatever, and send it up to Labrador to the Innu. And my mother proudly says, I gave the Innu something. And my <laughs> wife says, we're not Innu. That's so, so cool. <laughs> Did this add meaning and purpose to your life, being married to someone who was culturally different? Because that culture is a very rich culture, isn't it? Well, certainly. I think every culture is rich. And, and okay, fair enough. What is perhaps a little bit unique about that culture is we're so late to the game. Yeah. You know, my Blendina's grandmother um, probably didn't meet a white guy till she was in her 40s. Right. Uh, or if she did, a white guy, it was a trader or a priest or something. And didn't they do a good job? Um, and my mother's, my, my wife's mother would have lived on the land until she was in her 20s anyway. And Blandina spent the first five years of her life, either in the winter in an igloo or in the summer in a sod hut. Oh, she really lived in an yeah, igloo? Yeah, so it's that recent. She, my, my wife had an Eskimo number, an E number, E675 or whatever it was. She didn't have a name to the government. She was E675 or whatever the number was. Wow. And then, see, her name was a Taujoak which is what Inuit named when somebody died, their name was passed on to somebody and you were that person. Yes. And a oh boy, am I going to get in trouble for this story? And my wife, um, because she was half white, uh, was squired by a, a Hudson's Bay boy from Scotland to protect her. They gave her the name of Taujoak, who was a powerful shaman who just died. Mm -hmm. But a Taujoak was a male. So my wife was raised as a man. She was a Taujoak. Mm -hmm. And then um, the priest came along. And she comes from the part of a Glulik that was very Catholic and very Catholic. And um, so they decided, well, you have to have a Christian name. Yes. So she was named Blandina because the priest was from Belgium. 
and her brothers and her sisters. If you listen to the run of brothers and sisters, you'll know where the priests switched from Belgian to Canada. They are Blandina, uh, Jacinta, Luger, Jimmy. Jimmy. Want to guess where it changed? <laughs> anyway, and then in the 60s, in the mid-60s, they decided, well, people had to have last names. Yes. Um, because calling them by a number, um, you know, to somebody um, of the Jewish faith would understand how inhuman and terrible that is. Yes, of course. So um, there was a guy named A. Bukbeck, and his job was to go around the Arctic and give people last names. Oh, you're kidding. And Blendina's dad's Inuktitut name was Muckick. Yeah. So she was daughter of Muckick. Yeah. So she was Blendina Muckick. That's fantastic. And that's how it happened. That's a fantastic story. But it happened in your lifetime. Yeah, it happened in my lifetime. So this you is said, what I'm thinking. You said, what a unique culture. It's It's unique because it's changed so much in our lifetime. It's not like... Um, the culture went through the change that the First Nations did in the 1800s yeah. or whatever. Yes. You know, it's happened in our lifetime. There are still people alive who only speak Inuktitut. So can you speak much of it? Not much. And, Do you know a few words? What little I have. I know a like, few. Let's hear something. Let me hear you say something. Uh, kind of weeping. How are you? Okay. Uh, I, I do know that the first thing I asked my I'm not going to tell you the story. Sure I will. The first thing I asked my wife to, to <laughs> pronounce, to teach me was um, take your pants off. <laughs> Carlingley. <laughs> That's a great story. I'm sure she's going to love this yeah, one. Yeah, you better write it that part. Yeah, yeah. right, yeah. right. So what's Inuit about your household today? Uh, if you go to my freezer, there's some pitsy, which is um, uh, dried fish. There's probably some char, frozen char. There might be some frozen muktuk, which is whale skin. And there might be some seal or caribou in the freezer. Um, certainly, as you walk in the door, uh, you'll walk by a kudluk, which is an old seal lamp made of stone, which would be, I believe she thinks it's 500 years old. So that's old. Um and certainly there's some Inuit, a lot of Inuit art. Um, and uh, I have the largest collection of walrus penises probably in Canada, definitely in Toronto. No, you're kidding me. Oh, how could I make something like that? Are you serious? Uh, I do. Um, where do you get a, where's the market for wal, walrus well, penises? I can tell you where you get them. In yeah. fact, I'll tell you the story of getting them. Yeah, where'd you get that? Okay. Uh, a walrus penis is a bone. Okay. And it's about... I don't know. How would you describe that? An inch around? Yeah, yeah. Uh, an inch, an inch, an inch and a half circumference. And it's about 18 inches long. Oh, yeah. And, in Yiddish, we say kenenahara, like nicely done. Yeah. Well, uh, it's a big penis. Yeah. Well endowed. Yeah. Uh, and um, I thought that four of these bones would make a nice coffee table with glass on top of it. It'd be a nice <laughs> conversation people. Especially after people, people would say, so what are those? I would go, those are walrus penises. And people would go, nah. So anyhow, I decided this is what I was going to do. And I, uh, my wife was going north, and she told Muckick, her father, who was going on a walrus hunt. And Muckick could never give me anything because he didn't have anything. Right. But I'd always tried to give him stuff. Like what would you give him? A bottle of scotch. He loved the scotch. He loved the scotch. And you can't get scotch in a glue. Do you get good scotch? Like would you get single malt? What would you get? No, I could get away with the cheap stuff. The cheapies, eh? <laughs> you know, where you don't have any, like the cheap You're stuff. you with good. anything. You know, so, so, you know, but I would, every time I was going up or a blend was going up, I'd send up a bottle of scotch. And he really liked that. So he loved the idea of doing something for me. So he's out in a walrus hunt, and there's a number of Inuit men out in the, out in the skin boats, and they shoot nine walrus. 
and the nine walrus climb up in the ice. They're mammals. And the Inuit men start jumping off, and Mucket goes out, and he starts cutting off their dicks. Oh. Now, usually the first thing you do to a dying walrus is not cut off its penis. Oh, right. So the other Inuit men look at Mucket and say, what are you doing? Yes. He says, I'm cutting off their dicks. And uh, he says, uh, they say, well, why? And he points at Blendina in the boat and says, <laughs> she wants them. So they look at Blendina and say, why do you want the walrus dicks? And she, she looks at them and says, going to build a coffee table. <laughs> at which point they told her she'd live south too long. So. <laughs> But it's a true story. And you got them. I, I do. And I still have a number of, uh, I mean, I've added to it. I have about 12 or 13 of them now. And what I've done with them is two things. One, I, I, I take them to work and get the people I work with to sign them. Do you? Because when I tell them what they're signing, you get to hear go, ah! Do you sign, which, you, that you tell them after they've signed it? Yes. Yes. Which amuses me greatly. <laughs> me Because I'm an evil person. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing is I play in a fantasy baseball league. And our championship trophy is a walrus penis. Makes and each perfect year, sense. Whoever wins writes their name on the walrus penis. And the walrus penis has been to Germany because a guy in Ger Bonn, Germany won it. It's been all over the States. And currently it sits at my house and because the Nunavut Ice are last year's champion <laughs> in our 21-year-old league. Is so. there any other function of these? That is, does anyone else collect them in the world that you know of? Not that I know of. So That's why I presume. Yes. I, you know. Wow, that's very auspicious. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we all got to have something. Uh, agreed. Yeah. <laughs> agreed. And who has that? Yeah. So is are there any rituals within your home of Inuit culture? Well, my wife has her rituals. I don't have them. Um, uh, what we have, she has the remnants of residential school mm -hmm. where there, she has a lot of catechism in her. And, you know, you don't get rid of that easy. And, and down deep, she'll never be rid of it. And the scars she has from residential school are, are significant. But I would not tell you about those. That's up, you know, if you wanted to interview her, she can share what she wants to yes, share. Yes, I understand. Um, but as for Inuit cultural rituals, uh, I, I suppose there's a few that... You know, for example, in their culture, you would not make a joke about certain things because it's felt if you joke about somebody's affliction, you'll get that affliction, mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a number of things like that. But as to significant, no, not that you'd notice at our house. No, You, you adopted two children. Yep. Custom adopted. Custom adopted. Yep. How did that work out? Wonderful. I had a good Father's Day. I just got showered with stuff. Yeah, that's nice, um, isn't it? My daughter, who I got when she, I first met her when she was four, and she didn't speak a word of English, and I moved in with her and the cable TV when she was five. Right. Um, and we used to walk around to Callowit, her on my shoulders, and called that's called a caca, is what it's called. And I would say, point at something and go, rock, and she would go, igarak, yeah. or uh, um, I'd point at a cloud. She'd say whatever was cloud and nuktatuk. I'd go cloud, and that's how she learned English. Yeah. But the sad part is I never really learned nuktatuk, so at the dinner table, English became the language. So poor Sheena doesn't speak her language now. However, she does work for the city of Toronto and has a really good job at uh, Parks and Yeah, so something good came out of that. Yeah, and she's been there for, I mean, I don't know, since 2004. She's been there a long time. How old were you when she was riding on your shoulders? How old was I? Yeah. Uh, I would have been 30. 30. And did, did you adore children? Were you good with children? I hated children. 
Did, no, did you really? Yeah, no, I, I still am not comfortable. I would, I don't hold babies. You don't? No, and uh, I always said it added some dignity to my relationship with Sheena that she was already toilet trained when I met her. That worked well for you. I like it. Well, why don't you love children? Why do you hate children? I don't hate children. I just, I don't feel comfortable with them. And because? I, and I don't naturally, you know, how some people, you would be, come here, oh, let me cuddly. hug you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not a hugger. I'm not a hugger at all. I hugged you when you walked in. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, you I were, felt your distance though. Well, I'm not a hugger. No, I will hug you when you leave. Uh, well, if you must. <laughs> um, <laughs> we all get off. How but were, we get you, off. But were you good with the little ones? Were you good though? I've never... Yes, I was, and I've never worked so hard. I mean, I worked hard with Blandina, but I love Sheena and Colin. Yeah. I love uh, Sheena's. I mean, Sheena's really a wonderful, wonderful human being. She and I went um, in October to England by ourselves. Yeah. Um, because Blandina had just started a new job and didn't have any holidays, and I had a bunch of holidays I had to use or lose, and Sheena was just finishing at the city for the winter because she works in Parks and Rec. And so we went to Harry Potter, mm -hmm. and then we went to York and uh, met all the Vikings and stuff, and we had a wonderful time. Did you? And we have a lot in common, and we have many similar likes, and she has made my life so much richer, better, uh, nothing but positive. What do you guys have in common? Uh, we both like Harry Potter. Yes. You, um, well, you read the books? Oh, each and every one, uh, yeah. and watched the movies, and been to Harry Potter World in London, and spent well, a fortune at the damn gift shop. What resonates uh, with you? With Harry Potter, it's yeah. well written. It's a good story. It is well written. Yeah, 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 it's a good story. So you like a good story? Yeah, I was. The movies I found very visual, but I was I way preferred the books. Right, right. Now, when did you start to feel like you were their dad? Probably took a few years. Um, Colin came through a different story. Colin was seven. And I think you're already sort of what you're going to be when you're seven years of age. Yeah, I would agree with that. And Colin had had a rough go. Um, Colin had been abused as a child. Colin had been taken away already once by ch uh, Children's Services uh, for being bitten. Um, by another human? By, by the people that were raising him. They bit him. Um, Colin also... I believe um, was probably a victim of, of uh, fetal alcohol or some, uh, you know, he was diagnosed later in life as having some issues. And uh, the reason we ended up with Colin was um, I'm in the middle of sex with Blandina. And Blandina says to me, I want to adopt Colin. I'd promised his dead mother, a woman by the name of Philomena, uh, that I'd look after him. Was it, is it significant that you were in the middle of sex? Yes, because I actually said I got my son in the middle of sex. And she said, can I bring Colin down? Well, in the middle of sex, a man will agree to anything. <laughs> yeah. And I, yeah, 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 sure, no problem. You all my fortunes. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> so uh, that's how I got Colin. <laughs> yeah. um, sex has played a significant role in your life. What? Sex. It's I played think it played, a, played a significant role in everybody's uh, life. Uh, yeah, yeah, but you talk about it, which is really nice. Uh, You're a healthy man. I, I, it's always been good to me. <laughs> good. <laughs> so, so, so you adopted Colin. Uh -huh. Well, we stole him actually. What? What do you mean? Uh, we brought him down under false pretenses, saying we would send him back, and we just never did. Oh, really? And because of the situation up north and so forth, 
it, we just called it a custom adoption and kept them. So this, but was I your, have no paperwork. I have no owner's papers or anything. This was your plan. It was Blandina's plan. I was the one just having sex, agreeing to stuff. You know? Which right, which yeah. most of us would. Yeah. So and 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 nobody came for him. No, no. And you know whatever issues there were, Blandina dealt with, and it was not. I was not of that world, and it was not mine to deal with. And were you okay with all this? Did you? Sure. Deal well with it? Yeah, I mean... You weren't frightened? I, I'm not a particularly deep thinker ever. I mean, no, like, no, you, you know, are. You always say that. You are. No, 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 I'm not. And I take what life throws at me. And, you know, Colin was a wonderful, lovely young man with some issues. But uh, I I loved him. I, and, and I, you know, I became equal with him and Sheena over a few years. You know, not instantly, but certainly... and. He was such a forlorn little bugger when I first met him. What was I, he? That your heart just broke. I mean, he was just a poor little urchin with this wonderful smile. And I mean, he stole my heart. Did he? And so I always raised him. And, and then he, certainly as he went to puberty, things became difficult. The mental illness surfaced. But, you know, one of the things that I am proudest in my life is I got him through high school. Yeah. And I could have, both my wife and I, but I'll, I'll say I could have taken the easy way and had him, taken him to a psychologist, had him diagnosed, and maybe it would have been easier. But I knew that if I did that, as long as he got his high school, he still had the option of not going on disability. Mm -hmm. He had the option of a normal life, if you will. Mm -hmm. Well, it wasn't to be. I mean, his, his illness was quite severe, and um, uh, he lives in Ottawa now. I bring him down once or twice a year. Um, he's had a running battle with drugs, but he's he's, uh, he's on top of it now. And um, look, he's healthy, and he's breathing, and he's lived in the same house for 11 years, and that's pretty much all I can ask. So with all this, you feel blessed? Yeah, I mean... Uh, you know, there are days that I am not a happy man, but yeah. there are days we all are not happy. Correct. Overall, I mean, life's pretty darn good to me. Yeah, you know, it seems that way, but I think a lot of it has to do with how you've dealt with it. I mean, I've seen people who have tremendous lives and they constantly complain. And I've, I've seen other people whose lives you construe as, well, you know what, there's a lot of shit going out of their lives, but they seem pretty damn satisfied, you know? You deal with things quite well, I must tell you. Well, thank you. I mean, I wouldn't describe myself. You, we've all met people who are just the happiest, most wonderful, nice. I'm not like that. Um, you know, God bless them. Lucky bastards. I wish I was. Um, but I, I think all in all, it's worked out pretty good. I've met a woman I loved. I've yeah. been with her 32 years. Certainly, we've had our ups and our downs. Um, uh, I have... Two wonderful children, one who I just got back from going to England with. I've been able to travel all over the world, both professionally and, uh, and uh, you know, just for fun. Um, I've met so many fascinating, interesting people. I'm a lucky man. Yeah, you really are. You really are. What, what are some of the places that you've traveled to? Uh, I, I, the most interesting trip we took was we went to my wife, my daughter, my sister-in-law. The four of us went. We, we went to Beijing, and then we took the train to Mongolia because Inuit come from Mongolia. Right. And uh, Ulaanbaatar is a crazy place. Um, it's, uh, but 
two minutes outside Ulaanbaatar uh, uh, is the Gobi Desert, and it's incredible. Yeah. And we went and we stayed in a gur and visited a gur, and and uh, it was just amazing. And it looked like the whole town was run by Inuit in the city of a million people, and it was very strange. And then we had to rush by bus to a place called Ulan Uday. And if you ever get a chance to go to Ulan Uday, don't. And, but <laughs> don't. that's where we caught the Trans-Siberian uh, Express by train. And we spent five or six days and we went to Moscow. And then we spent time in Moscow and went home. And that was a good trip. That's wonderful. Yeah. Are they expensive trips? Oh, yeah. They yeah. Are, they're a fortune, these trips, right? Well, the thing was, I'll tell you, the cheap part of the trip was the train. Because you're not paying hotel each night, you're on the train, and I mm. think the train cost us a thousand dollars Canadian each, which is you know less than two hundred bucks a night. Right, so, right. Yeah. Okay. I, now I, the food was god awful. Oh, was it really it was awful? Terrible. Really? Did you manage to eat it? Um, well, I'll tell you, it was sort of service with abuse. Um, <laughs> the the Russian. Uh, I don't know what they were. The people that looked after the train. There were two women that looked after the. Uh, uh, I, we were in the first class car and their job was to be rude 24 hours a day on 12 hour shifts. Yeah. And because I don't speak Russian or read Russian, the only way to learn the, and they weren't interested in speaking English. This was not, not on the table. Um, the only way to learn what the rules were was to break them. And then they would come and scream at you. You know, I opened the window. Well, I shouldn't have done that. Yeah. I put my suitcase on a bed. Yeah. I shouldn't have done that. Right. Uh, and they'd come and they'd just... Really? They yell at you? Yelling. and, and, and Are rushing. you good when people yell at you? Nobody likes no, to No, no, I'm you know? not good. No. I'm terrible and, at it. And the thing is, in a country, a foreign country, you can't yell back. Right. No. <laughs> right, right. They'll, right. They'll send you back home. You know, so like you just have to sit and nod, smile, and try to figure out what the hell she's saying. But you know, what did I do wrong? Yeah. You know, finally I figure, okay, shouldn't have done the window. Right. But the thing that got me, this was the hardest part, was you couldn't put your toilet paper in the toilet. Oh. Because the toilet, it would jam it up. Oh, I'm now, familiar with that. Now, why would you have a toilet that toilet paper jammed up? I don't know. Uh, I'm pretty sure we had that in Israel. Yeah. Well, it must have been built by the Russians. It could be. Um, so they had a bag sitting next to you. That's right. Where you put your toilet paper. Correct. Yes. Which you didn't want to look in. No, you did not. No. no. And, and as a good Canadian boy, I had issues with this. <laughs> yeah, because we didn't have to go through that, did we? Yeah. No, we're lucky, we Canadians. Well, it's funny too, but my first year living in the Arctic before I, when I was in Baker Lake, before I went to Callaway and met Bland, I lived in a place. Uh, it was the IBC staff trainer house in Baker Lake, and it had a honey bucket. You know what a honey bucket no, is? I do not. It's like a garbage can with a toilet seat on it. Okay. And I remember walking in the first day, and I, I've been all day in an airplane <laughs> trying, getting to Baker, and I go to this house, and I'm looking at this, and I go. That's a messy proposition. <laughs> and, you know, trying to hold off, but like, you know, becoming quite dire. And one of my trainees came and I said, what do I do? And he says, oh, you put this heavy-duty garbage bag in it. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> now, having your own honey bag was okay. Was it? When it got about half full, you took it out and you put it in a 48-gallon good drum. And Great. Somebody did something with it. Oh, yeah. Um, Sharing a honey bag with others was oh. not was something I found hard to do. Oh, you would share it. Well, if you had company, 
because they'd have to go to the bathroom too. Oh, honey, the company's here. Yeah, well, it's like I have a girl sleeping over tonight, or yeah. I have a buddy's come to stay, or they put another trainer in for a week, oh, okay. and he's going to shit in the toilet too, or yeah. shit in the honey bag too. Yeah. Um, which, well, that's not my shit. Mm-hmm. Um, but the worst thing to do is have a beer party. <laughs> Because a beer party fills it up fairly fast. It would. And trying to grab the ends of something that no longer has ends. Oh, my gosh. Was god-awful. Yeah, th- so, those are terrible memories, aren't they? Well, they're, they're character Yeah, I need to character gather building. myself here. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing, though. You're welcome. Yeah, this huh? is probably... I hope be, your audience enjoys that one. This has been the most unique interview I've done to date. Well, you know, it's, it's kind of shitty. <laughs> yeah, it is a little bit. So, let me go down a different road here. Okay. Some sort of universal stuff, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, why do Why do so many people hate Jews? I have no idea, but I'll tell you, one of my earliest memories is in grade one and grade two, we lived where the landlord of the house in Fredericton was a grazier. That's what I remember. She went on to be quite an artist. And they had a son who might have been a year or two younger than me. Okay. And we, uh, and, and it turns out for very good reasons. Uh, they wanted the downstairs we, we were in, and they were they owned they bought the house. Yes, and they wanted us to move upstairs. My parents didn't want to. They decided to get their own house. But you know, as a somebody in grade two and with a bunch of friends in the neighborhood, I was explained. Well, the Jews upstairs wanted the uh, where I was living. Yes, and I do remember yelling, "You dirty Jew!" You you yelled that. I yelled it. Yeah. At and I'd have been two years grade two, mm-hmm. seven. And years this old. was to a kid who Zeta took us to Dairy Queen, and Zeta had this old, I don't know what it must have been, a Cadillac or an Oldsmobile convertible, <laughs> and we'd, he'd load all the kids in the neighborhood. Everyone was a Gentile except for uh, Jeffrey was his name. Jeffrey, Jeff, yeah. um, whatever I said the last Z- name. Zeta being a grandfather. Yeah. yeah. And So they treated you well. They treated, oh, look, and uh, how do I repay it? You dirty, dirty Jews. Jew. Yeah. You know. So... Having said that, I really had no interaction with, uh, even though Fredericton had a sizable Jewish population, I moved across the river to a very Protestant, uh, you know, suburban, lower, suburban, uh, lower class area. White Gentile. Where, in, all of a sudden, in grade 10, I'm sharing a uh, locker with Howie Budovich. <laughs> yeah, that would be Jewish. <laughs> and and Howie was a great guy, and Howie was really cool. Yeah. And it was around this stage that I realized, hey, Howie Budovich's sister's pretty good looking too. Um, I'll date the Jewish girl. <laughs> you betcha. And then I ended up working with Bonnie Levine, yeah. who was a babe. And Bonnie was, and and but we did this television show in Fredericton where we did different types of cooking. And she took me to I probably your mother's house. I don't remember to do potato latka cooking. Yeah, yeah. And this was amazing. And I also had the world's weirdest boss. His name was Bob Anson, and God bless Bob, he's dead now. This man was a complete nutter. I mean, he really, and he was full of nitroglycerin pills. And I mean, he was completely <laughs> off his rocker. Yeah. And when he did touch sanity, it was not a sanity that I knew. Right. Um, but he was Jewish crazy. And like, I still have a Israel flag that Bob gave me. Bob was Jewish crazy. He just liked Jews. Uh, he, uh, there are people you've like heard that. Of people like Brit Files. Yeah, he was definitely a Jew file. Yeah, yeah. There are people yeah. who love us too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so that was really my getting to know anything about the Jewish faith. Um, and then it went away until I met you. 
<laughs> oh, was I the next Jew that you I met? I guess so, because a medicine hat in Calgary were not big Jewish towns. No, towns. no, there's not a lot of Jews who made their way out there. You know, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, I drifted apart from Bonnie Levine. Oh, no, but there was a um, there was a Jewish girl there at one point. But anyway, so. So, so have you uh, seen anti-Semitism in Toronto? Oh, yeah. Have you seen a lot of it? No. Okay, but you've seen some of it. Yep. Well, I mean, you and I saw a Jewish graveyard um, put with swastikas and so forth in yeah. 2002, 2003. Yeah. And uh, native artisans went out to... Beautiful story. ...to, to uh, clean up the tombstones and to polish them and to get rid of so the... So, I, I, I don't know if you know this or not. It's out, on the, it's out on Royal York Road. Okay. And it's a Jewish cemetery that's been around for many, many decades. In fact, my grandfather is buried there. Oh, yes, isn't that something? Yeah. So, one morning we wake up and we hear that swastikas had been scrawled all over these tombstones. We get a call from some of your clients at NAMI Res and they go, we're stonemasons. And we have the ability, if you would allow us to, to fix for free. If for free. Yep. There is no charge here. So I had to go through all the different sort of, you know, committees and so on. You know how the Jewish community works. No, no, but fair enough. We're I mean, steeped people, in committees. Yeah. People's parents are buried there. Yeah. So, people's right. Yeah. So Bernie Farvers of the world and so on. And in the end we said, Okay, we'll take your help. Right. <laughs> really, like we've been trained to give pretty well, but we're not big on taking help, right? Well, this is sort it of hasn't out worked out well. That's sort of out of left field too. Yeah. Yep. Anyways, these guys go out there and they uh, scrub these stones for days to the extent that when you look at them today, you cannot see those swastikas. I met a kid out there, by the way, who was clearly not native, clearly not Jewish. And I said to him, I said, so what are you doing here? He says, well, I live out in Scarborough. And he says, I always felt that I wish I would have had the opportunity to go over to Europe and fight the Nazis and save some Jews and save other people's lives. And I never did. So I figured I heard about this on the news because it went across Canada. Right. And I came out here and I figured I'd help. And, oh. I, and you know, what, what, what more can you ask for, right? No, I mean, that was a beautiful thing. But, you know, of course I've seen anti-Semitism. But, you know, maybe I'm fortunate. Not a lot. Um, well, that's my good My wife went to Auschwitz. Um, oh, did and she? And she took... Uh, this aunt Madeline when they were in Poland that they went to Auschwitz yeah and uh, my wife had the hardest time explaining to Madeline what because Madeline speaks no English yes what happened here because they did there were no words in a nuktatuk for what happened at Auschwitz oh isn't that something? no word for genocide there's no word for it because it's unimaginable so they never needed to develop a word. Oh, isn't that fascinating? It's like fixed rate mortgage. There was no word for fixed rate mortgage either. Um, <laughs> I love you, buddy. <laughs> and g g great comparison. Well, I, you know, it, it's words that there was no need for. <laughs> no, no, it's fascinating. And yeah. you know, my I haven't been. I would love to go because I think it must be one of the most powerful places on earth. Yeah. yeah. And but Blandy brought the brought pictures home, and uh, you know. What she told me, though, and, and uh, uh, look, I probably shouldn't say this, but what the heck, I'm free flow, um, was that the locals there weren't so keen to show it off. Correct. You know? And what I found fascinating is uh, my wife and I went to Germany um, in 2013. We went to Germany, Spain, Brussels, Belgium, whatever. And in Germany, the first thing you saw when you walked in the museum in Bonn was 
a tribute to the Holocaust, that the Germans owned it, you know, but the Poles didn't own it. It's like the French don't really own all the guillotines that took place. The Germans own, or at least I felt they did, what they did in, uh, in World War II. While I thought the Poles are being, you know, according to my wife, we're being a little bit, like, sheepish about it. Yeah, though that's so interesting to hear about this through another culture. Yeah, and that there were no words for the for, for the I word. I found ge- that fascinating. I also, I also yeah. find that amazing. It, it's fantastic yeah. what we learn when we have these conversations, isn't it? Well, it is. I'm it's enjoying f- this. I'm also yeah. enjoying it. Okay, so the reason I ask about the anti-Semitism piece is because I'm a Jew. I'd heard that, <laughs> you know, yeah. and I want to know this stuff because I'm a little worried, and so are my people. My people are a little worried. We're a little I worried. Think you that- have right to be. Um, I mean, let's face it. You've had right to be for 2,000 years. And every yeah. time you think things are getting better, something weird happens. I, I know. It's true. Yeah. W- would you uh, Would you go to bat for us? Would you? Yeah. You would. Okay. I'd go to bat for anybody. You I would. Mean, yeah. I-, I think to generalize about any group of people is wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I-, I-, I don't know enough about the situation in the Middle East to be able to give you an informed political uh, opinion. You know, uh, I don't hold anything against Palestinian folks. I don't think you do either. No, fair enough. Uh, I do think it must have been weird for them to all of a sudden had Israel created. Yes. Um, but I love, you know, sort of every time there's a uh, somebody takes on Israel, they claim them, uh, you know, right. which is kind of neat. Um, but I wish we'd figure it out. Um but it's not going to get figured out in my lifetime, and uh, I don't. I don't think I approve of the Israeli prime minister. He seems a bit militant for my taste. Mm-hmm. He also likes Trump, so I have a hard time with that. Not a Trump fan, eh? Yeah, I'm not a Trump fan. Yeah, <laughs> but whether the embassy should be in. Tel Aviv or Jerusalem, I don't know. I have no opinion on that. I don't know the whys, wheres, whatevers. Uh, so, but I, 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 I really wish people would stop killing each other out of faith or out of nationalism or out of color, creed, religion. You know, um, and I every time I think we're getting better. You know, what I see going on in the world right now, I'm sure, depresses many of us. I hate to see these far right-wing extremists doing well in Europe. Brexit is idiocy. It is just complete lunacy. Yes. What's happened in America is ridiculous. And, you know, every time we get holier than thou, we elect Rob Ford or Doug Ford. So we're not that smart either. Um I, I don't know. Maybe it comes in cycles, and and each time the cycle we're a little bit better. I hope that's what's happening, but we're certainly at a down part of the cycle right now, in my opinion. Uh, I used to have clients uh, through via Hafta who would tell me that they smoked crack with the mayor the night before. Isn't that bizarre? Uh, well, it uh, turns out it was true. Yeah, it was yeah, true. Yeah. Do you find that you harbor any form or any level whatsoever of racism toward anyone? I think that we are all aware of race. Yeah. And sometimes race can be a distinguishing factor. I'm also 62 years of age, so certainly I come with baggage. But in my life, 
the most animosity I've had towards any group of people that took the longest for me to get over is French Canadians. Yes. And the reason for that is I come from New Brunswick, which is a province torn apart by language. Mm -hmm. And my parents, Imperial Order, Daughter of the Empire, you know what side they were on. Mm -hmm. So I was raised very anti-French. And it took me decades to get over it. Now, I love to go to Quebec City and I love to go to Montreal, but I did in my lifetime say some nasty things about French Canadians. Did you? And shame on me. And, you know, I learned, but... Um, you know, look, I guess we're raised with our prejudices and, you know, I, I'd like to believe I've got over that one. Well, growing up, uh, we were instructed to hate Germans. Well, you know, I can see where that one came from. Yeah, you know? I came home at six years old with a pencil sharpener right. and it said made on Germany, made in Germany. My mother, you know, took me by the ear or the shoulder. And she schlepped me back to the store and she said, you're going to return that. And you know how our moms used to embarrass us yeah. in those days. <laughs> the whole neighborhood would hear about it, right? Yeah. But stuff like that. And then I had weird shit happen to me. Like I was walking home with a buddy of mine from school. We just bought hamsters together. And all of a sudden he turns to me, he goes, Hitler never finished his job. And I, and, and this was like my best friend. It was weird. And where did, was he coming I from? I don't know. His parents forced him the next day to apologize to me. Good. Yeah, no, no, it's good. But you think, where does this stuff come from, right? Look, our And you're absolutely right. We're all sort of suspect of, of the other. Well, and, you know, we are how we're raised. We're in the communities we're raised. Um, you know, for heaven's sakes, do not think Canada is like Toronto. It's not. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and I think in Toronto, we're guilty of thinking it is. It's not. And many of the things we think are, as Torontonians, are, are right or are, are liberal values or whatever, well, that's not how they feel in Moose Jaw. Right. You know, or Fredericton or Red Deer or whatever. And I love my country. I'm very proud to be a Canadian. And, mm -hmm. and boy, oh, boy, the Canadian women's soccer team is playing, and I'm, <laughs> yay, Rod, cheer. Um, more than I should be, probably. But, you know, I've seen so many... People put the states down because of what happened with them and, and black folks and so forth. Yes. And they're terrible. But, you know, our statistics with the indigenous folks oh, I know. are pretty damn embarrassing, too. Oh, I know. You know, where it's more likely that an indigenous person will go to jail than to high school or to university. Um, that's pretty damn embarrassing. And I don't know how you feel about the word genocide. Um in the uh, report on missing missing women and children, I I don't think it's inappropriate. You do not. No. Well, you know when you take certainly it, historically genocide was uh, happened against the indigenous people. Is it happening now? No, of course not. But did it happen? Yes, of course it did. Well, you know, I mean, there's no beothic left. When you take a look at the definition of the word genocide, it's killing a people or killing some of those people. It's not the entire race. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the definition, it does apply. I've heard people be up in arms about it. Well, people be up in arms. No, they are. Day. They are. Right, right. So, okay. So we're, we're going to finish the interview in a couple minutes. Okay. I uh, I'm so happy to be doing this with you. I enjoyed it. I, I'm so enjoying this. You are you are such a fine human being. You really are. Well, you you flatter me and you're wrong. We all, I have many. No, flaws. I have always had strong feelings, and I just think you're a interesting interesting guy, and you're very generous of spirit. 
and you've taught me a lot. I'm just so happy to be with you, Greg. Thank I really, I really am. Avram, look, the door swings both ways. I mean, yeah, you've thanks. Been amazing. Thanks so much. Okay, you love the Beatles. I do. Your favorite Beatles song, um, or one of your favorites? Uh, look, I love a lot of. Well, I am the Walrus, but <laughs> the, there we go again. Yeah, but, but the happiest moment, uh, maybe of my whole life, was I traveled to Liverpool by myself. Yeah. I went to the Cavern Club. They had a Beatle look-alike band, sound-alike band, and if there's one place you can look and sound like the Beatles, it's Liverpool. Yes, and. They played, I saw her standing there. Yeah. And I got up and I danced by myself, and I don't know if I've ever been happier. Uh, just single glee. That you know? is so cool. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. What 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 is it about the Beatles you've always loved? Well, uh, the Beatles happened uh, in 1964. I was seven years of age. Certainly, Ed Sullivan impacted my world, if not me directly. And the Beatles were just so cool. I mean, I spent my 60s yeah. trying to grow my hair long yeah. while my dad wanted me to have a brush cut. Yeah, me too. Um, and it was like just to grow bangs was a big deal. <laughs> yeah. you know? And it, they were just so cool. Everything new they did was they were the first to do. Yeah. And then as I grew older and started appreciating music, because, I mean, I, my favorite was Herman's Hermits in the 60s. Uh, I remember Because that, yeah. I was seven years of age, and mm -hmm. I, uh, I'm i Henry VIII, I am, was easy to follow right, along with. Right. But as I learned something about music, you certainly learned the Beatles pioneered so many different sounds. And they were the last, weren't they? I mean, uh, U2 is a great band. The Rolling Stones, I mean, the Rolling Stones are hard to, to compare as later. But, you know, there's been other bands. Springsteen have come along, have been marvelous. Yeah. But the Beatles were unique, they were. and there would be no what we have today without the Beatles and the, and the doors they kicked down. I think John Lennon was a true genius. Oh, they were brilliant. And I'm not brilliant. a huge Paul McCartney fan, but I certainly think he's the smartest living Beatle. <laughs> Good one. Why are you not a fan of McCartney? In what year did Paul McCartney write silly love songs? Yeah, so I didn't like that either. 1962 to the present is the answer. In other words, you just did not like his music. No, no. I mean, I'm trying to be... Silly so Love Songs was... was it? Um, yes, of course I loved Yesterday. There were many songs. Yeah. Look, Band on the Run is a great album. It has some great songs. Well, that, that really was his best album not, after we, the Beatles. I think so, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really was. But, you know, it turns out he needed Lennon, and then, frankly, it turns out Lennon needed McCartney uh, softening him up a little if, bit. If you want to see a great documentary on Netflix, watch uh, one called... I think it's called, uh, called Above Us Only Sky. And it's about John Lennon and Yoko Ono when they were making the Imagine album. I've seen it. I've seen it. It yeah, is yeah. a freaking great documentary. It really is. These are very special people. Oh, they are. And, you know, um, I think John found love. And, you know, if you find love, yeah. you're a very fortunate human being. And I think he found true love. And he put up a lot of shit for it. And he certainly got eccentric about it along the way. But, um, you know, I, he, I, said he like, found love. He said like this in the documentary, two things. Number one, he said, when I was a kid, he said, I just didn't have the love that I needed. And he said, all of a sudden, Yoko comes along. And, and I get this love, which is all embracing. And I took full advantage of it. He goes, why did I write the song, uh, I'm Just a Jealous Guy? You know, I'm just a jealous yep. guy. You yep. know the song. He says, because I am. 
He says, I love this woman with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my essence, with all my being. And I just want to embrace her and not let anybody else in. So I'm jealous of anybody else having contact with her. I, I look, I never totally understood it. Yeah. Um, I'm sure John doesn't give a shit whether I understood it or not. Um, it was in, he had a freedom to break down walls that most of us don't. Correct. You know, he had the money, the time, uh, the drugs to break through to the other side. And I think he did. And I think he they went through tough times. I mean, the lost weekend. Um, but I think he ended up incredibly happy and the two of them incredibly loved each other. Uh, but I don't think that's the kind of love most people can have because we have to get up and go to work. Well, we're working all the time. Yeah. Simply put. You know, so I have to get up and go to work is to sit home and explore, how can blending and I break develop our love yeah. to another level? You know, uh, how's Ringo doing? Oh, he's been dry since 1980, and they, they always said he married the best looking of the Beatle wives. But is is he okay? Is he good? Yeah, he's good. He's yeah. happy. Oh, because like I he's playing he's, he's playing up in Aurelia. You well, know? that wouldn't make anybody happy. That's what but, I'm saying. You know, you know? But no, I mean, of course he's happy. He's Beatle. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, and yeah. he's he's still married to Barbara Barbara Bach, and what's that been 40 years now? Yeah, yeah. and. Um, you know, every once in a while, like I saw the opening of Love in Las Vegas on television, and he's there. And I saw some Grammy show and some other show. And look, Ringo's happy as heck. Look, Ringo may have been the most fortunate person in, in the, the 20, 20th century. It's true, yeah. isn't it? Nobody lucked into being in the right place at the right time quite like Ringo. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. yeah. What a score that now, was. But you and I are about the same age. Do you remember Ringo actually had a string of hit singles? Uh, you're 16. Uh, you're 16. I love you. Photo. Uh, all I need is a photograph. Oh, so I remember that. Yeah. 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 Like he, Ringo had hit singles. Yeah. Ringo. Yeah. Back off Boogaloo. Uh, oh, that was a good song. Back yeah. off. Was that his? Yeah. I love that song. Uh, so there you go. And George. Uh, well, George was always too spiritual for my taste. <laughs> was he? He was my wife's favorite Beatle. Yeah. Uh, my wife's not a huge Beatle fan. Uh-huh. So she would didn't. She she was not jealous. I went to Liverpool. So women are attracted to the George type. My wife is. I can't speak for women. I wonder why. Do you know why? Uh, I have no. I, she said she just thought he was cute. Oh, how he looked. Yeah, well, I don't think it was particularly. It's deep. not like the Maharaji thing or, or the no, playing I the sitar. See my wife getting too Maharaji. And you don't have a sitar at home, just no, walrus penises. A lot of Indian oh. incense moments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't imagine that you would. Okay, my friend. Thank you for doing this. Well, thank you. It was lovely, and it was great to see you. Well, you too. And uh, thanks. Uh, we'll do we'll do a sequel in ten years. Yeah, no, okay. we're not going to wait that long. Yeah, <laughs> tell your wife I send my regards. Will do. Yes, and uh, I thank everybody for listening. I ask, please, that when you listen to the show, uh, remember that the goal of Hat Radio is to produce positive, uh, positive broadcast, and hopefully we succeeded at doing that today. We had a great time. And I think we told some. We talked about some really significant stuff. You know, there's so much yellow journalism out there today. There's so much crap. You don't have to go very far to find the garbage. It's all over the place. I want us, I want us to bring out the goodness in humankind. That's what I want us to do here. And, I, and I'm pretty sure we succeeded in doing much of that today. So thank you so much for listening. We have some phenomenal shows coming down the road. If you want to uh, listen to some of our past shows, go to hatradio.ca. Again, that's hatradio.ca. And uh, if you have any ideas, 
uh, for some people whom you think would be good for uh, Hot Radio, let me know. Anyways, uh, this, you've been listening to Hot Radio. It's the show that schmoozes. Do you like that? The schmoozes. It's a good one, no? Yep. It's the show that schmoozes, and God bless. Avram Rosenzweig began public speaking when he was five years old. Over the last five decades, Avram has mastered the art of public speaking. Today, Avram is a professional speech writer and speech coach. He offers a wide selection of services that can assist you in preparing for public speaking events, speeches for family or professional occasions, a keynote, a memorial, or a simple toast. Avram can also coach you through articulation and presentation challenges. For all your speech writing needs, send Avram an email at info at hatradio.ca. That's info at hatradio.ca. You've been listening to Hat Radio with Avram Rosenzweig, sponsored by Goodness and Positivity. Hat Radio, the show that schmoozes. Step inside my living room, share a little talk. By roads walked and lessons learned, keeping the flame of faith burning. I want to know where you've been, what you found out. Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the height 